My name is Dustin Kelly, but everybody calls me DJ. I'm prior army, serving as both a Ford observer and a military police officer. I spent the last 14 and a half years as a police officer and detective in a large metropolitan police department. Two things that I've learned throughout my career. One, everybody has a story to tell. And two, the best stories are true. This is the DTD Podcast. And we're live. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the DTD Podcast. This week in the studio, a man who at the age of 12 lost his brother to homicide in Washington Heights, New York. When he saw the look of devastation on his mother's eyes at the news from two police officers, he decided at that moment that he would dedicate his life to law enforcement so that he could maybe spare another family going through the pain of such a heinous act. Fast forward to 1987, he was assigned as a U.S. deputy to the United States Marshal Service, and upon graduation was assigned to the Southern District of New York, where he had the job of transporting and guarding high-level mafia bosses and gangsters during the height of the Mafia Commission. After leaving that service, my guest became a special agent with the ATF, where he worked undercover buying machine guns, silencers, narcotics, and a host of other firearms. Moving to Bergen County, he worked narcotics, vice, homicide, organized, and sex crimes, and he finally landed at U.S. Customs, where he was a weapons expert and an organized undercover money laundering operator. While at Customs, my guest worked in Miami and several countries in the Caribbean. This guest has even trained some of Hollywood's most famous actors how to assume the role of an undercover for blockbuster hits such as Miami Vice, Burn Notice, and America's Most Wanted. He retired in the fall of 2019 and now is the global security director for Pfizer and a professional boxing and MMA judge for the Florida Athletic Commission. This guy has an amazing story and I can't wait to tell it. Introducing Lorenzo Toledo. How are you? Great. How are you? Thank you. Thank you for that great introduction. I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I wanted to make sure I got all the names of the cities right and your name. There's there's so much to go through on it. So I'm so happy that you're here to talk and and kind of get through this story. But as I stated in the very beginning of this, your dreams of becoming law enforcement were very early in your life and because of what had happened to you and your family. So if we right. could... Before that, I would like to go back even further and just talk about your upbringing before that happened, what life was like between you and your brother, the differences, the same, all those different kinds of things. Sure. Um, I grew up in a relatively lower middle class area of New York City called Washington Heights. Um, my daddy, my dad had two jobs to make make you know ends meet for us. My mom worked as well. And um, I was much younger than my brother. I believe he was 26 when he was killed. Um, and you know, it was, it was an interesting lifestyle in the sense that you had to grow up pretty quickly over there. Um, you know, I, there were no buses taking me to school. I had to walk to school, uh, you know, um, all the time. And my mom would always tell me, Hey, be careful, you know, be careful, make sure nobody's following you. Um, there were gang situations all the time in that area. Um, a lot of, uh, burglaries, a lot of robberies, um, a lot of drugs. And, uh, it, it was a, a tough time growing up in New York as a kid, but I had great friends and we made the best of it. And, and you know, it, it's uh, it's a quick way to become uh, an adult in, in a sense, you know. 
You had to grow up quick. Yeah, I've heard you mention that you didn't even have like buses that took you to school and stuff. That it was no. um, you you walk kind of both ways, and like you said, your your parents told you to watch both ways. I wonder though about you and your brother. Was there a difference in how you were raised, or the time that you were raised, or anything like that that influenced um, anything that was surrounding him at that time? Well, you know what's funny. My brother was most of the time he was out. He was out at night. He was coming home late at night. He, um, I remember one time as a young, I must have been eight years old. He he had a Derringer inside one of his drawers, and you know I looked at the gun. It was loaded. Obviously, thank God I was I was smart enough not to pull the trigger. But he was living a fast life. You know, he was out there, and uh, prior to him getting uh, murdered, he was actually shot in Puerto Rico. He was hanging out with some guy that was a drug dealer or something, and, and he was hanging out in Puerto Rico. I guess they were looking for the guy, and they shot both of them, put them against the wall with um, an Uzi. Uh, for, uh, no, it was a 45, I'm sorry, 45 caliber Mac 10. My brother was hit seven times. Um, the other guy was shot like 12 times. My brother pretended to be dead because he fell under the bed, and they the other guy was moving and squirming around, so they ended up you know, shooting him in the head and killing him with my brother. They said, no, he's done. Let him go. You know, let's just leave. And, and they left. And as a child, I had to go see my brother. Um, and I'll never forget going to Puerto Rico to see my brother. And he had a colostomy bag on. And that was, you know, for a little, you know, for a kid like that, you know, you, you're there, you see that your brother, he's all shut up. And, and you see that the suffering that my mom had, my mom would actually hitch rides with me as a kid to get to the hospital to go see him. And, um, it was terrible. It was just a terrible time in my life that I never forgot. You know, the I saw the pain in my mom, and then, unfortunately, years later, man, he was uh, he was he was killed. He got into a bar fight with a known bad guy in the area, um, and the guy waited for him outside the bar. And, and when he came outside, the guy shot him in the head, executing execution time. So let me ask you: was was there? Was there a difference that you think between you two? I know you grew up at, at separate times, and I've kind of asked this question before, but I, I think the the question how I'm phrasing it might be wrong. You seem so different from all of that. Is it because right. you saw that, or is it because uh, that was the way it was for you? You were kind of on the straight and narrow the whole time because you had seen him going up through this, or was it because you saw that at the end? No, it actually was. It, it was that I saw him. He was living a kind of fast life. He was always out there. You know, he was always with different girls. He would come by the house driving these different cars. And and my father tried to shield me away from that as much as he could. Um, I had a great relationship with him. Like he'd take me to the movies and, and he'd spend time with me. But what happened to him had such a profound impact on me in the sense that, you know, my mom was old school where, um, after my, my brother died, she dressed in black for the rest of, she must have dressed, well, she dressed in black until my son, my first son was born in 88. So all that time she was dressing in black and it just, it destroyed a part of my mother, you know? So I didn't want to go that way. I wanted to give them, you know, no one in my family had graduated college, no one, you know, worked law enforcement or anything like that. So I wanted to give them, I wanted to give them something to be proud of. Um, and that's the, the, you know, the path I chose. Well, if, if we can talk a little bit about the suspect that was involved, like you said, he was a known bad guy in the area. Yeah. Now 
and everything right. that I've researched on this, he was known for a couple of murders or he was good for a couple of murders in the area already yeah. before your brother. And a right. lot of people knew what had happened, the story, who it was, who was involved, but no one would talk. And the reason I right. ask that is because that had to affect you later on. Being in law enforcement, I know that you've gone through it at times where you'll go to something, you'll try right. and talk to someone that you know knows something, and they won't give you anything. And it's right. got to be frustrating, especially from that point for you going yes. through your career of law enforcement. Right. Absolutely. And it was frustrating um, for me because just everybody was so afraid to cooperate that this guy will go after them. In fact, the guy I had, I have another brother who this guy was so bold that he went to go see my other brother because he had heard that my brother was going to try to get this other guy killed for you know revenge of doing this to my, to my brother, my younger brother. And uh, the guy actually showed up where he worked, said, hey, I hear you're looking for me. And, and my brother, you know, he didn't know what to do. I mean, he, he got scared. He got scared and he said, no, no, I don't want nothing to do with this. That was his life. I'm not involved in that kind of stuff. And I resented my older brother for that. If you, you know, I, I was like, man, if that would have been me, I, I would have, you know, I would have taken him out. I would have taken him out. I wouldn't have let this guy walk away. And, and you know, you know, I don't, I don't know what I would have done at this point, to be honest with you, man, because it's tough. It's tough. Uh, I, like I said, I spent most of the time with my mom and, and I saw that pain and, you know, it's hard. It's, it's hard um, to see that. But that guided my career for sure. So do you think that that changed not only relationship, like you said, with your brother, because nothing was done there. So we, right. we look at it in like almost like a trickle down effect. Your older, you, you know, your older brother has been murdered because of the life he lived. So you've lost right. him that you hung out with your other right. brother. You don't think handled it correctly. So you lose right. kind of a relationship with him for a while. Your mother right. is a, a different person than she was before with your father can we talk about everything that it affects? Because I don't think that people that aren't in law enforcement or that don't do these kind of jobs on a regular basis, first responder military understand exactly how big the ripple effects are from these crimes. And, and right. I'm talking even from narcotics and things like that, yeah. they ripple out and we'll go into it later on when we talk about your career, but I don't think that the general public knows how far these currents ripple out from the center. Right. And that's a very good point. And it's something that I saw all the time in my career. It's like, you know, you, you know, yeah, you get a bad guy, you know, for doing what he does, but the family's devastated. You know, it's hard to go to a family and, you know, and tell them that their son was just killed. You know, even though he was a bad guy and he was doing stuff, it's hard to go there. And you watch these kids that are innocent that had nothing to do with their dad's actions. And yet they're going to pay for it. And it absolutely a ripple effect. And it happened to me as well. You know, I, like I said, like you were saying, I, I resented my brother for not doing anything. And this, this hit, this guy, this guy that killed my brother, he was part of this organization in New York city that was called the Rudy battle organization. Um, there's a book that came out about this guy. And um, this guy ran all the numbers, the Spanish number in, in New York city and in New Jersey. And he had killed a bunch of people. He had, he had ordered a bunch of hits and, and that my brother just happened to cross paths with this one guy who was one of his many henchmen and the guy wasn't going to allow that, you know, and that's why that happened. So let me ask one more thing about this, because I think it's going to affect later on as we talk. Sure. When you approach this in your career from this happening, I want to take it from a different approach. And I want to ask you 
when you see stuff like this and when you see these guys that are messed up, don't have their life in order because you saw it working undercover. You saw it a ton of times right. when you're buying weapons and stuff like that. Do you ever have a soft spot for these guys knowing that's just like my knucklehead brother? Yeah, absolutely. I absolutely did. And I think that's something that followed me in law enforcement. I, um, you know, it, it was hard to see the stupid decisions that people make when they're young, you know? As you know, some of these guys are not, I mean, you can talk to them. They're not bad guys. I mean, some of the guys I worked with on the job, I actually had less respect for than some of these other guys on the street, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I mean that, you know, and, and it's, it's um absolutely, you're 100% right, man. So I, I had that, that's how I, I, I got a lot of guys to flip and cooperate because I was honest. I didn't tell them anything that wasn't true. And I developed a good rapport with them where, look, man, you know, nobody's going to be here. Nobody's going to give your girlfriend money when you're gone. You know, you, yeah. they're going to try to do, you know, what to her, you know? Yep. So you're forgotten, brother. And I used to tell them, how do you think you got here? You think we just picked your name out of a hat? You know, so listen, it's a game. You got, you got boss. You got to do what you got to do to help yourself and help your family, you know? So that was always my, my way of trying to do the right thing for people, you know, give me opportunity. Um, yeah. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I have something to add on, but go ahead. Yeah. But no, I think. And I've always said this, I think the cops, the best cops out there are cops that have lived a life where, you know, they've seen different things and they have more experiences, you know, and they've seen guys that are bad and they've had friends that are bad and, and they've been able to distinguish and not cross to that other side, you know, and, and I was very close. I mean, I was recruited to join a gang in New York City. They had a, a gang that was a very, it was, I believe it was called the, the Savage Nomads, I think was the name of the gang. It was a street gang, but they had a, a younger division for kids like 12 and under they were like you know and I, I forgot what they called them but they wanted to recruit me for that and when my mom saw that 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 was going on even though i wasn't going to join the gang um we got out of there you know we left new york city i had heard you say that before that that after that happened you you got out and and kind of never looked back now you showed up later right. on in your career but but the family kind of never looked back do you yeah. think that that was something trying to get just to make that situation go its own way, to go so far away and to to take care of the family and just kind of do a restart. Do you think that was the goal of it? Or do you think it was just looking at it and going, this is a no-win situation. This is never going to stop. It was more of that. It was more like, you know, my mom, she saw what was out there. Uh, I'll give you an example. A couple of the guys in my, in my block, we had um, – we have bicycles, you know, we rode around and stuff and we made ourselves these colors, these jackets. And we weren't a gang or anything like that. You know, I think, I think we called ourselves the road runners or something like that. We we're like 10 or 11 years old. We had these jackets on, you know, next one day I'm, we're there hanging out and all of a sudden I got 25 real gang members that show up and they said, Hey, we run this block. You need to take those colors off, you know? And I was like, Hey, here you go, buddy. I was like, no problem. You know, it was me and I think it was three other friends. And I was like, you can have the colors, you know, we don't belong to any gang, you know? So they, again, you know, they, they liked us because we were nice and they wanted to try to recruit us, you know? And, um, we, only one of my friends ended up joining a gang. The rest of us didn't join a gang. Do you know what happened to him? You know what? I, I actually do. And he's doing really good now. He, he was able to join the gang and then his family ended up moving to Clearwater. And he was like my, my, you know, my friend, but he was my big brother, you know, because he, after my, my brother died, I mean, I had him to kind of help me with anything that happened. And, and he was, uh, 
he's a good guy, him and his brother, both good guys. And joined the gang. I remember when he showed us his, the colors of the gang. They looked so cool for us. We were like, wow, that's so cool. But I didn't want to go that route. There was no way I was going to break my, my mom's heart. You know, so I didn't want nothing to do with that. Now, something interesting about you, though, is other than in Bergen County was really the only time you worked homicide. I would think yes. with that background that that's where you would strive to be. But it was mainly guns, drugs, uh, money laundering, uh, you know, in and out, import, export. Is there a reason why you didn't go to homicide or or try and get on a task force that was doing violent crime homicides or anything like that? I was actually with ATF when my career started with ATF. I was on the, I was on a, um, I was part of the Newark, uh, the Newark ATF um, firearms task force. And what I also did was I got involved in any homicides that happened so that where a gun was used, I could go out there, get the information for the gun, get the gun traced and be, I wanted to get involved in it. I loved it. I loved it. You know, so I wanted to do that when I was in ATF Um, with Bergen County. You had to be there for a while if you wanted to get into homicide, and rightly so. You know, you had a the the progression was usually work sex crimes because they did so many interviews, right? Interrogations. So you build that experience doing that, and then you go into homicide. I was helping. I was because I was sex crimes. When there was a homicide, I was called out to assist. Um, But you know, homicide is the ultimate crime, in my opinion. You know, it's that's that's the pinnacle. You know, so that's. That, that's um that's where I would love to have ended up, you know. And I didn't know when I got into the feds that the feds really don't do homicide cases. Well, you, you know, you say that you work sex crimes because you do so many interviews, you learn how to talk. Right. But I truly, truly in my heart believe the best place to learn how to talk is narcotics street level. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because you can start at the very bottom, move all the way up right. to the top, and you have to know how to talk to each person differently because every single person is different. Every single interview is different. Every single flip is different. And so I understand that, that you use that later on. Another thing though, going back to the beginning of your career is you're being a U.S. deputy and it's during the, the mafia commission trials, right? You had done a lot of transport of big name mafia guys. You transported them, guarded over them when they were there. Do you think that affected how you work later on? Because I would think so early in your career, seeing that big and learning how to talk to those guys and move around in that space would pay dividends later on in your career. Yeah, absolutely. It did. Um, and I'll tell you what, I mean, I, I got to see these guys and how they operated. And I also got to see the best defense attorneys cross-examine, um, you know, agents and officers and I saw the questions they asked and I knew when they made a mistake and it was like going to school on testifying, you know, and, and, and how to, how to turn somebody to be an informant, you know, the same time I was reading every single book that came out. I was fascinated by the whole, the whole, uh, undercover and narcotics. And I read every single book. I mean, one of the books I remember reading vividly was, um, this DEA agents, uh, book, um, Levine. I don't know if you're familiar with, but he, the guy's amazing. He did really big undercover cases. I read his. I read Joey Pistone's book um, that he wrote, and um, I learned so much from those guys. You know, I learned so very much from those guys, and yeah, absolutely. I mean, the experience I got in Bergen County, as far as interviews and interrogations, it helped me immensely. Um, I always had the gift of gab anyway, to be honest with you, because I was just a street kid, you know. So I always dealt with guys like that anyway. So I would always develop a good rapport with them, you know. 
So let me ask you, though, what you learn from the criminals you're working with, because if, mm -hmm. if there's a hierarchy of criminals and I, I, I hate to put it that way, but those mafia guys are tried and true. They're the they are at the top of the totem pole on that one. Right. right. So I want to know what you learn from them. You know, it's funny. What I learned from the ones we had was that they were gentlemen. Most of the time they were gentlemen. I mean, when we did search warrants, I actually had a chance to do search warrants in their house when I was with ATF. And I go with Essex County, one of the local departments. They'd offer us coffee. They'd offer us. They were gentlemen. But as far as giving themselves up in the beginning, you know what? They actually all did for the with the exception of uh, of John Gotti, that as far as I know, he never gave anybody up, you know. But these guys were all trying to cut deals. They were all trying to cut deals, and and you know they they stabbed each other in the back, man. There was no loyalty. That that whole uh, persona about the mafia is all you know. It's baloney. These guys would try to cut whatever deal they can to to get out of jail, you know, and to to give up each other. And, and that was something that that I remember one time I was in the marshals and we had these guys come in and this one guy said I don't want to cooperate. I'd never give up this guy. He's my brother. And we pull the other guy and the guy goes, hey, man, I'll give you everything, you know? So that's what I mean. And I'm sure you've experienced that as well. It's like, oh, my God. It's like, where's the loyalty that everybody watches in these movies, you know? It, it's not there, man. Everybody just wants to save their own neck at the end of the day. Do you think that that helped you craft your character for later on? Because let's be honest, you had a couple characters as you moved through your career. Do right. you think this kind of stuff helped you out craft that? And it doesn't have to be the main part, but do you think it was right. something that definitely helped you? It did help me. And, you know, at the time I was getting involved in uh, law enforcement, you know, I, there was, that was also the era of the disco clubs in New York City. I was going to all these clubs. I was noticing how these mobbed up guys would go in. They wouldn't have to pay. You know, I was watching these guys and how they operated. And, and that persona helped me when I was doing any type of cases that involved, you know, um, Italian mafia guys, for example, I, I would kind of mimic what I was watching, you know, um, my name, you know, Lorenzo, it could be Italian, it could be Spanish, you know, I'd always change my last name. But when I lived in, in New Jersey, I, I developed like a pretty much a, an Italian accent. I had an Italian accent, so it was easy for me to just to fall in with the crew. And, and, um, when I moved to Miami, it was different. Miami, I had to learn Spanish all over again. You know, because my Spanish was pretty broken when I when I was in New York. I would so, imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Did you like what you were doing? I loved it, man. I, I loved it. I loved my job. I loved doing undercover work. I loved doing law enforcement. I believed in it. Um, you know, I think what happens in law enforcement to a, a lot of us is, you know, the job changes you in the sense that you start dealing with people that you feel don't have the right mission you know, in their minds, you know, and, and you try to stay away from those kind of guys. But as far as the job, I, I, it wasn't a job to me, man. I, I would have done it for free. That's how much I loved it. Well, and, and I'm mainly speaking of the U.S. Marshal job because what a lot of people I don't think would have that good of an attitude stepping away from yeah. it. I think they would say, well, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. I really wanted to do this in the Marshals. I really wanted to be here. And you see it on every level of law enforcement, right. local, People aren't where they want to be. They don't think they move there fast enough or they don't ever think they're going to mm -hmm. be there. So the reason I asked that is because into my next question, I heard that uh, you had been tried to be bribed by one of these guys one time. And I right. want to talk about them trying to bribe you. But the, the main point of what I want to talk about there is 
how much they were offering you and how much money you were making. Cause you said you'd do it for free, but right. I want people to understand the level of right. difference in what they right. were willing to pay you yeah. versus what you were right. paid. Right. I mean, listen, with the marshal service, the problem with the marshal service is that there was too much court time. There wasn't enough time in fugitives or witness protection. You have to pay your dues and be there 10 years maybe to get to where, where the fun was, you know? So for me, it was interesting because I sat through all these commission trials where I was listening to all these cases that were coming out in all the newspapers and I was dealing with these guys. There was a guy by the name of Fat Tony Salerno who, who happened to be in uh, MCC and we were transferring him to court and back to jail. And um, one day I'm there at the cell block and he says to me, hey kid, um, he says, hey kid, uh, I'll give you a thousand dollars a week if you get me out of here. You know, <laughs> so, and mind you, this guy, Fat Tony Salerno, he's in the Metropolitan Correctional Facility, the Federal Correctional Facility, right? He had Cuban cigars every single day. How he got them in? I have no idea, but he had one in his pocket. I mean, he wasn't hiding it. Yeah, he had a cigar in his pocket coming from the Metropolitan Correction Center. So, you know, he, he offers me this thing. And I said, come on, Tony, you know, you know, I can't do that, you know? So he starts yelling at me and he says, you're a stupid kid. You'll never amount to anything. That's why you have this terrible job you have. You're a loser. <laughs> I, just, I said, all right, Tony, whatever, you know? He controlled, he controlled Spanish Harlem. He was a, a major, major player in, in the mob. And he was all but five foot, two, five foot two, maybe. Well, and and it's interesting that you say that about him. That yeah. that there's such a, a a dichotomy there that he's you know five foot two, but he runs this major area. He comes to you, he asks you to do this, you tell him no. He calls you a stupid kid. Right. <laughs> you you keep on doing it, but there's still that level of respect that that right. he at least uh, you know. Um, didn't try anything after that with you. He, no. he, he respected you enough to know after that. And so when we talk about these mafia guys that you were around for a, a long period of time, what do you think was your biggest takeaway from the entire assignment? The biggest takeaway from the, the mafia commission, everything like that. You know what? The biggest takeaway takeaway is how corrupt everything is, you know, how far they can, they can, you know, they can they can uh, send their tentacles to get involved in every single thing. I mean, if they wanted, they would shut down the construction. I don't care what it was. In fact, they were involved in this Jacob Javits Convention Center in New York City for billions of dollars. And if they wanted, you know, they could just shut that thing down anytime they wanted. Not a problem. They had cops in their bags as well. There were some cops that were getting paid off by these guys that were identified in, in the trials. And, um, you know, that was all very interesting to me, how, how careful you have to be. And you have to be careful if you're going to do undercover with these guys because they have, you know, they have means to find out who you are that, you know, your regular street guy is not going to have. Right. So, you know, yeah. So, so that, you know, those were the things that I learned. I mean, um, they were, they were stone cold killers. They really were. They were stone cold killers. They wouldn't think twice to put a bullet in you or to chop your body up. You know, it wouldn't be a problem for them. And, and some of the cases they actually did chop up bodies. And, uh, and, you know, there were other cases, obviously they were shooting people left and right and just burying them, getting rid of the bodies when no one ever found the body. Right. Yeah. And, and especially at that time, I mean, you're talking about, yeah. you're talking about some major crime that was going down. It's right. interesting though, that you point out about John Gotti, that, that he right. never gave anybody up yeah. and then, you know, his whole family pretty much turned against him. Uh, right. and, and not just turned against him. I mean, like his, you know, very close blood 
became right. TV stars and, and completely, yeah. you know, just exploited that life that was there before them. Right. And it seems weird to, to think that how it all ended for him seeing all that, what a change right. that must've been because right. his whole life up until he got put, you know, in the trials and stuff was, uh, secretive. Right. Right. So, you know, it, it was funny with him because he wanted to be Al Capone. Like he loved the fame, you know, he liked the cameras and he was almost laughing at law enforcement, you know? And I think at the end of the day, that, 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 that bit him, you know? Yeah. That bit him big time, you know, cause they didn't stop going after him and, and rightly so. But I think he got too, you know, he just wanted to, you know, he was, he was just too much into the publicity and that's the worst thing you want to do if you're a mobster. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, yeah, you want to be quiet and you don't want anybody to know what you really do. So I think he, he kind of, you know, he, he got to the point he even got insulted in jail. He got beat up by by somebody in there. I mean, there was nothing for him anymore. He was broken. Yeah, it, what what a change. So let's yeah. move on to 1988. You're offered a position as special agent with the ATF. Mm -hmm. yes. You get assigned into New York into the SAC office. Uh, yes. Later on, you're transferred over to the New Jersey office in Newark. Correct. correct? Right. Um, I want to talk about this guy that you work for now. I, I want to try and say his name. I don't know if it's correct, but Dominique Prolifrone. Polyphrone. Polyphrone. Okay. Dominic Polyphrone. Yeah. Now he was an undercover that was very influential in your career. And he was the one that actually nabbed, uh, the, um, Iceman. Yeah. Kuklinski. So let's, let's talk about that. I want to talk about how you met him how you watched him work and then what you took away once again from that in your career. Right. When I, when I got hired, um, I was actually hired by, by another great undercover by the name of Alex Diatri. He was one of the, the best undercovers that ATF ever had in New York, in that area of New York city. Uh, he looked like a legit mobster. And so was Dominic. Dominic was the same thing. He looked like a, a mobster. So when I got hired, I, and I remember I came back from the Academy. Um, I sat down with Dominic. And he, he asked me, hey, kid, so what did you learn at the academy? And I said, I learned a lot, sir. I learned this. I learned that. And he just said, hey, man, you don't know diddly squat. You know, you don't know nothing. He says, your, your training starts today. And I remember because he pulled out a, 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 a scotch. He had a whiskey he had in his desk. And, and we just sat there and had a drink and just talked, you know, about what, the, what was going to happen in the job. And, and he gave me some tips on the cover work and what I should look for and, and what I should do, what I shouldn't do. I learned about his uh, job with Kuklinski after the fact, because he actually got promoted after he did that case. So I didn't know him before that. I knew him after. Um, he had the book that was coming out that I read, and, and you know, I, I got a lot of personal time with Dominic to talk about how it was for him and how, it took, how long it took him to get um, close to Kuklinski. It took him over six months just to have the guy talk to him, showing up at these social clubs, fencing, selling stolen goods, and... That's how he was able to get to the guy. But, um, yeah. Yeah. Well, he, he ended up telling him how to poison a person. That's how they caught him with, with cyanide. Right. And it, right. it goes to the level that he was willing to go to talk to this guy to get in. I mean, right. we're talking about a man who killed tons of people. Right. And with disregard goes in there to get this guy brought down. Right. And he, and you know, it's funny because, one of the ways it got Kuklinski is that he sold Dominic a, he sold him a firearm with a silencer on it. And, you know, with ATF, that's like a 10 year, that's a 10 year violation. And in the, in the you know process of doing that, Kuklinski just opened up to him. 
and he took a liking to Dominic where he started talking about, you know, how to do murders, how to poison people and, you know, all this stuff. So what they did was Dominic set up, they set up another, uh, another detective and they said that they wanted to kill this guy. So they hired Kuklinski to prepare the poison that they were going to use on that other guy. Kuklinski's plan was to kill them both. He would go ahead and kill that one guy, get paid, <laughs> and then he would kill. Yeah, he would kill Dominic, and that was caught up on the on the phone wires they were on. Because Kuklinski's mo was always, you know, you you, he, you know you pay him for the job you want him to do, but then he'd kill you, so there would be no witnesses. And and that's what that was going to be Dominic's fate if they wouldn't have picked it up on the wire. And luckily for him, you know, they were able to do that, and and they they were able to get Kuklinski. So what what was it that came across the wire? Do you remember in particular how it was going to happen other than getting paid? Do you remember what was going to no, happen? No, I, I don't remember. I, I don't remember what it was. I think they caught something on the wire where he said that he was going to kill. You know, he did give the poison to Dominic to right. pass it on. It was going to put it on a burger or a sandwich or something like that. And I think they got something in the wire that he was talking to somebody else. And he said something like they were going to kill Dominic next. And I think that's when they shut everything down. And he was arrested leaving his house by uh, New Jersey State Police and the Attorney General's office and, and Bergen County. And then became kind of a kind of a celebrity in his own right. I mean, right. The, the HBO documentaries, the books and yeah. things like that. So I right. always wonder, and I, I, I like to ask guys like you that have been around these guys and been around right. these big guys, what do you think is the switch that flips in them to go from what they did to being quasi-celebrities? Right. I, you know what? Uh um, Kuklinski was, um, you're, you're talking about Kuklinski, right? Is I, that you want? Or I, I'm talking about him in particular, but yeah. you know, you just look around to a lot of these guys that, yeah. that have done what they did and then they turn into celebrity status. Right. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. You know, Kuklinski supposedly, you know, was beaten brutally by his father. Him and his brother were both, you know, on a daily basis, they were beaten. And, um, his brother ended up, uh, accosting an 11 year old girl raping her and throwing off a rooftop in New Jersey. So he was in jail for life. And, and Kuklinski, I mean, he read all the books on how to kill people. And, and he was just so fascinated by that life that, and he had this temper that he couldn't control. And, and he just, he just started killing people. You know, it was all for money, obviously, but the guy enjoyed killing. I mean, you look at some of his interviews, he enjoyed killing. With Dominic, Dominic was a guy that grew up in an area called Hackensack, New Jersey. That was half mobsters and half cops, you know, and he grew up in that life. So he knew how to, you know, walk the walk and, you know, and, and talk the talk. And he was he he never he never looked like a cop at all. You know, so he was perfect for that, those kind of Italian organized crime cases or, or anything like that. He was perfect for that. But as you know, you know, you can and I'll give you the reason I'm telling you this is because that guy, Alex Deatri, was a great another mafia, good undercover guy, did a lot of cases. But he made them. He made the mistake of thinking that persona was gonna work in Miami. He came during the Marilitos when all those Cubans came from Miami, and he brought his persona that he was a mobster from New York, and they were trying to do a you know four kilo deal or something like that. He ended up getting shot five times, and his partner was killed. So you got to know your audience there. You got to know who you're dealing with. Some people don't care that you're a mafia guy. You know they don't care. Absolutely. Right. And, and you talk about these guys, this is what you're seeing on a daily basis and a right. monthly basis in the ATF. I right. mean, when you're talking about, 
you know, tobacco, firearms, not really tobacco, but right, right. firearms, munitions, things like that. These guys are are doing it not because they're collectors. They're doing it because there's a right. job that needs to get done. Right. And and that's what we did. I mean, we were going after we were going after we weren't going after, you know, John Q. Citizen that was had a collection of weapons. No, we were going after guys that were making silencers, machine guns, that were dealing drugs. And I always said ATF was the closest thing to being a local detective in a narcotics unit because that's what we did. We went out with the locals and we were doing small amounts of, of you know, the biggest purchase of drugs I made in ATF was two kilos. That's it. You know, we were buying small amounts. But well, back then, cocaine uh, yeah. was was pretty high in value. Yes. So you yeah, you, you yeah. were dropping a lot of money on two kilos. Right, right. But we just ripped the guy. We didn't have that kind of money in ATF, you know. <laughs> and I remember because it was funny because I did this two kilo buy the day right before um, Waco. I'm sorry, the day after Waco, we did this deal. So all the attention was on ATF. Absolutely. Right? So now I'm, I'm about to go into this hotel, a motel. I'm going to meet these guys outside the motel where I'm going to do this buy. And I remember that our sack, which is a point of a chief of police, called me. He called me 15 minutes before the deal and said, hey, Lorenzo, this can't go bad. Understand that. He goes, if this go bad, it's going to be on you. Are you sure that there's not going to be an issue? We don't need another shooting. We don't. I said, sir, you know. I'll do the best I can. I don't, I don't anticipate any problems, but I can't guarantee that, you know. And and luckily for me, nothing happened, you know. Um, but anything could have happened, you know. <laughs> There's only so much you can control. A- absolutely. But that's yeah. got to be a strange question to hear. Yeah. And, and I'm sure you heard it numerous times over your career. When you hear someone tell you that's not doing the job, uh, right. they're the sack, but and, right. and granted, they're not going to do the job because they're the SAG. Right. But when you have guys that are putting it on the line and they're telling them it can't go bad, well, you can't control every single reality right. that's going on in there. Right. And so it only seems to add pressure to the situation, especially that's what it if did you're going to do. Yeah. Especially if you're going to do a rip. Um, right. I mean, that's you're you're going into it. So what's your thoughts going into that? You hear that you see Waco's going on. How do you approach this? Because you've got to get in the right mind state. Yeah, I mean, for me, like I always did my undercovers. You know, I, I turned on all my antennas. All my antennas was on. I wasn't going to go inside their hotel room no matter what. You know, I was going to try to control the environment. You know, I, I knew where my cover team was. I, I knew where these guys, what room they were in. Um, I did everything I can, so we did this deal outside. And I was able to do that, you know, and, and I try to get as much advantage on my end as possible. But I'll tell you what, going into a deal like that, there's enough to worry about, you know, just on the deal alone. Now I'm hearing this from my sack saying, well, you know, you know, it's crazy to hear that, you know, and he was a great guy. He was just nervous. He was he was probably one of the better sacks I had in my whole career, but he was nervous. He was just didn't want the, the bad media press to hear anything else about ETF. Do you have any problems? And, and we're getting around to a question. Do you have mm-hmm. any problems with? uh guys that are going rogue on you at this time or 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 going bad and the reason i'm asking this is because the seven five controversy is happening and i know that you were involved in the mike dowd part of his crew being taken down uh for their arrests uh another precinct i think it was the seven four the seven six had just had a scandal before the seven five precinct happened 
Are you seeing the same kind of stuff there? And the reason I'm going to ask is because I want to talk about the courts, prosecutors, uh, and and uh, attorney generals and stuff at that time. But are you right. seeing anything like that in the ATF at that time? As far as corruption with ATF agents, no, I wasn't seeing that. You know, we I didn't see that at all. In fact, you know, but I was there when they arrested one of Michael Dowd's crew, and I was actually in a van with a bunch of internal affairs guys. And we were waiting for this goal sign for them to give us the goal sign to affect the arrest. And I told the internal affairs guys from NYPD, I said, listen, guys, he's your guy. You know, you guys arrest him. I don't want to, you know, you guys go ahead and cuff the guy, you know, and they agreed they would do it because it's their guy. But when the goal sign was hit, those guys didn't get out of the van. They stayed in the van. I had a, I was like right by the, the back of the van. I had to walk over them to get out of the van in time. When I, when I heard the goal sign, they stayed in the van the whole time. And we arrested the guy. And, you know, I've always said that nobody hates a dirty cop more than a good cop. Absolutely. Because it makes our job 10 times harder. So, you know, I, I was lucky enough to not have that problem. I didn't have any cops that that um, that had that situation. When in customs, we had a local task force officer that got jammed up. And there was also a guy in customs that got jammed up that I knew. He had actually been in one of my undercover schools. He got jammed up for trying to steal money during a money laundering pickup and he got caught, you know, so crazy, crazy. So some people, what they'll do, you know, for money, but absolutely, I was lucky. Yeah. I was lucky. I've always thought, you know, that, that whatever amount of money you're going to get is not going right. to pay for the rest of your life. Right. It's very short sighted yeah. in, in the goal of it. Yeah. Uh, especially even with the seven, five controversy that was going right. on. Now, the reason I ask all that, I said, cause we would get back around to the courts and stuff at this time, right. we're prosecuting heavy on narcotics. We're prosecuting heavy on guns. You just mentioned that with the silencer on it, it's a 10 year right. add on, um, right. all of those kind of things. What do you think was about it? Because if at any time in law enforcement history, that's the time to be putting a hurting on the criminal element. Right. But at, at the same time, we're seeing mass amounts of controversy um, and people on the take and things like that. Why right. do you think yeah. that was back then? And you were there, so you would know. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it was crazy. I mean, I don't understand it. I don't know why people would do that. You know, I think what happened in New York City, you know, is that a lot of the cops they hired in New York weren't from the areas they were patrolling. So for them, it's almost to them, they developed this mentality where it's us versus them. You know, so they would go in there and it's almost like, I hate to say it, but it's like going to the zoo, you know, because they were seeing these people kill each other. They were seeing them burn buildings and they were, they were animals. So, you know, these guys started saying, hey, you know what? All these guys have these nice cars and nice money. They don't deserve it. We'll take their money. And I think that's the mentality that that those cops got, you know. Uh, it's a shame because, you know, once you go dirty, that's it. There's no go You can't turn back and say you're going to be a good cop. You know, it's, it's over. And I think that's that, you know, unfortunately, you know, in the academies, you know, we have that that blue line, right? We have that thin blue line. And some people think that it's a thin blue line no matter what. You know, and it's not, man. I mean, right. hey, listen, if there's a cop that's dirty, I'll give him up. You know, if there's a dirty cop. I'm not going to give a guy that, you know, we're, we're struggling with a guy. and he's, We got to try to take him down. And, you know, we got to use some force on the guy. I'm not giving anybody up for that. But if the guy's stealing, I don't want to be part of that. You know, and if he's putting me in that position, he doesn't care about me. So, you know, I'm not going for that at all. And, and I, it's a shame that those cops, you know, 
risk, you know, they, it, you know what? It's not ever about the money. It's about your kids, man. It's about your family. You know, your kid yeah. has to go to school the next day. You're a hero to him. You have a uniform, you're a police officer, you're respected. And now you're going to have your kids go to school and be, a, you know, everybody's going to laugh at your kids and make fun of them that their, their father's corrupt. It's just, there's no money in the world that's worth that at all. You know, and that that's always been the interesting thing to me about Mike Dowd, since we're talking about the 75 yeah. controversy is it never seemed to n- never seemed to affect him in that way. If you see him right. in interviews now, and and actually one of his jobs now is to go around to different police academies and tell them don't be a dirty cop, which is right. a very basic thing to me. I would think that right. that would be very easy to understand, but right. there almost seems to be no no uh, regret for what they did. Right. But you know what's funny? I, I think now the bad guy's more revered than the good guy. You know, like the media gives more attention to the bad guy than they do to, to the good guys out there doing their, their jobs. You know, you only hear about when a cop does something that the public perceives as bad. But how many times do we all do good stuff and nobody, you don't get any, you don't get a, a you know, a pat on the back for that. Uh, absolutely. You know, so, yeah. And, and that's what I think happens. I, I I don't know why there's this glorification for all these guys that they don't deserve it. That guy shouldn't be doing interviews for anything. He should be hiding, living somewhere in Minnesota by himself, you know, disgraced. But he's not. He's actually making money. A, a lot of money, too. Right. And, and, and he and started the, a cigar company with the, with the guy that he. Company. Yeah, absolutely. It's incredible. <laughs> you know, with the Dominican that he was running the absolutely. drug uh, scandal absolutely. with. Yeah, that's a that's a disgrace. So let me ask you then, we're talking about that and, and, and the flip and, and, you know, criminals are revered these days. What do you think happened? You know what? I, that's a great question. I, I don't know. I don't know if it was just the media took over and they're reporting all this crazy news that people like to hear about. I don't know if it's social media that, that, you know, every, everybody can tell you, you, know, you have all these um, social media cops, you know? That they, you know, they'll watch videos and they'll tell you what they would do. But none of them have has, has ever garnered a badge and a gun and gone out there and actually do the job, you know? Like, I love when people tell me, oh, you know, he didn't shoot. He didn't have to shoot the guy. He could have hit him in the foot, you know? And stuff like that. You're like, you have no idea what you're talking about, you know? Right. And uh, I always said that I think that departments should have more of those shoot-don't-shoot scenarios and offer it to citizens. You know, where they yeah, go out absolutely. Let, let them do that. Let the media do that. Let all these activists do that. And let's see how they do. And let's put that online and show how, how they would act when some when their life's in danger or someone else's life's in danger. I, I guarantee you that they'd be shooting people before before we will. Yeah, you know? I, I, I absolutely believe that. Right. I want right. to circle back if we could for a sure. second. Um, you were talking about dirty politics in the office with with mm-hmm. ATF, and that's what kind of pushed you over to Bergen County. Is that right? That's right. correct, right? That's one hundred percent correct. So, yeah. can we talk a little bit about the dirty politics that were? I mean, because you seem like the model police officer, one that wants to do it ever since he was a kid and stuff. Right. What could possibly be going on that would push you away from a job that you love doing? Right. Well, what happened with me was we had this um, this guy. He was an ASAC. He had just come over from headquarters, and before he was in headquarters, he was in Buffalo, New York, and he was a supervisor. And he was having an affair with a uh, he was a married guy. He was having an affair with an agent, a female agent, who was also in Buffalo. So 
you know, the guy was taking care of his girlfriend. She wasn't, she didn't have to do anything. I mean, all the guys in the group were really upset about it. And, you know, somebody dropped a dime on him with internal affairs. They did a, a surveillance on the guy. He got caught uh, making out with the girl in the government car. And he gets transferred to headquarters as a punishment, right? He was, he was a group supervisor at the time. He gets transferred to headquarters. The girl gets transferred to New York City. So now she's in New York City. This is like two years or three years later. And now this guy is going to New York as the ASAC. So this girl who was completely useless, she never did anything, absolutely nothing, you know? She tells me one day, I mean, I'm running the Newark uh, Firearms Task Force in, in, in Jersey. And she tells me, hey, you know, I'm, I'm going to be taking your spot. <laughs> so I said, what do you mean you're taking my spot? You know, I'm laughing at myself. How is this? She can't even do this job. You know, there's no way they'd even respect her. She goes, yeah, I'm going to get this job, you know. So I said, yeah, good luck with that, you know. So um, I want to say three or four weeks later, I get an email that I'm getting transferred. And they're going to send me to Red Hook, Brooklyn, which is about an hour. It, it would have taken me an hour and a half to get to. Yeah. So I said, wait a minute. So I, I talked to my sack. I said, I, I wanted to meet. At the same time, I'm already talking to the guys in Bergen County because since I worked with them so much, their, their prosecutor at the time was a former assistant U.S. attorney that had done some of my cases. And he would always tell me, Lorenz, I would love for you to come here. You know, I'd love to have you here. And um, so I'm already starting to, just in case, preparing an opportunity for me to jump, you know. So lo and behold, you know, I, I, go, I, I have a meeting with the SAC. And he says, look, you know, I say, hey, listen, I have a question for you. Am I being replaced by somebody or, if I, or am I going to or is that you, you just want you need more senior agents in, in New York City? And he says, no, no, we just need guys like you, experienced people in New York City. I said, okay, then I have no problem with the move. I'll do what I have to do. The next day, the girl's coming to Newark, and I'm going to Brooklyn. So she called it right on the money. On the money. So I called up the, the guy I knew, the former AUSA. I said, hey, I'll take the job. And he said, you can start Monday. This was on a Friday. And I went right over to see the stack, and, and I walked into his office. I said, hey, man, I have no respect for you. You lied to me. And uh, you lied to me and, and, you know, you told me nobody was going to take my job. And you did. You gave it to this girl who, you know, was having an affair with this other guy, you know. And um, he, he said, hey, you better. He tell, what he told me on the way out was, hey, you should look at your badge. It says U.S. on it. I can send you anywhere I want. And I said, no, you can't. I quit. You know, so, you know, I had, I had about 25 people call me to want to buy me a beer that night, you know. Um, and I left. I left, you know. Looking back on it, you know, I, maybe I shouldn't have left. That was a bad move. But my pride got the best of me on that one, and, and I left. And actually, I was making more money in Bergen County as a senior investigator than I was making as a, a senior agent with ATF. So it wasn't a bad transition. They had also told me I could take my time from the feds and put it into the New Jersey State Pension, which I found out after I came that I couldn't. So I knew I had to go back. You know, I knew I had to go back, and, and that's what happened to me. So it was just craziness, you know. It's the office politics that kills all the cases that we have. And that begs the question then, why can't we figure out at an, at an upper level and, and you've worked senior level leadership. Right. Why can't we figure out at that level that if something's not broke, don't fix right. it. Right. And why we torpedo things right. in order to get other things that aren't going to end up in anything. Right. You know, it's funny. One of the ways that you got promoted in, in these federal agencies is you were a case maker. You had to make cases. 
that was the route that you, you, you know, you became a supervisor and you moved up in your career. The other way was you went to headquarters. And what happened was you get all, and I hate to say this, but you get all these people going to headquarters. They have never made a case in their whole career, but they get to know each other. And then they get promoted. They come out of there. There were guys that were never supervised that came out ASACs, you know? And it's like, you, you can't believe it. You, you can't, you can't make this up. You know, it's the guys that are way, the higher you go up, the more, the, the farther you are from the real job. So there were very few guys, honestly, that were real cops that got promoted to real high levels. Just didn't happen. You know, these guys didn't have the experience. They just didn't have the experience and they didn't know how to deal with informants. They didn't know how to deal with bad guys. You know, they were administrators. They were bean counters and they were, you know, they, it was like, I used to say it was revenge of the nerds. How did they take over, you know? And, and that's what was going on. All these guys were taking over. They never really did the job. They never went through doors or anything like that. They didn't know how to do that. Some guys never put handcuffs on anybody. Yet they were, you know, they were bosses. It was insane. Insane. So as you come over to Bergen County, uh, mm -hmm. you have all this experience behind you. Because, I mean, let, let's be serious. With Bergen County, um, I, I'm guessing that you're working for the investigator for, like, the prosecutor's office. Is that correct? Yes, sir. Are you yeah. Okay. Yep. So yep. you're working as an investigator for the, the prosecutor's office. Being honest, with you working undercover for six years plus in the ATF buying stuff, mm -hmm. you are light years ahead of these people. So how yeah. do you take what you've learned in the ATF, what you've learned in the marshals, and bring it over to, I mean, technically a smaller time operation? Right. I'll tell you what, it's funny. Uh, yeah, I had more undercover experience than every, I'd say everybody there, to be honest with you, you know. I would share that. I would share that. I, I had, you know, I had um, taught ATF undercover and I would share that with the guys, the undercover work. And um, I'll tell you what, they taught me how to do interrogations. The interrogations on that level and the statements on the local level was far better than the ones in the feds. I'll be honest with you, man. They just had more experience because of the volume that they had. So it was a give and take like everything else, you know, there's things that, you know, and there's things you don't know, and there's things you can improve. You can always improve. So I had that relationship over there and, and Bergen County was a well-run outfit. They were, they, they were pretty squared, squared away to be honest with you, you know, again, politics got involved, same kind of thing, you know, that happens everywhere and, and kind of wasn't the same, you know, and, and, um, but as far as the job, the job was awesome, man. I mean, I, I was working homicide cases there as far as supporting, I, I did a lot of stuff that I never would be able to do. And, and it was very interesting. So do you know in your head the whole time, this is a short-term plan. I'm going to go back fed or are you thinking th this is what I'm going to be doing? No. The minute that I found out that I couldn't buy my time back, I knew, I knew I was leaving. I was going back, you know, and I, I, I actually did apply back to ATF and it was funny because, um, they hired me. They hired me back, but they said, you know where you're going? They told me, you're going to uh, Toledo, Ohio. My last name's Toledo, so I thought that was funny, you know? And then I accepted it. And then once I accepted it, they said, "Now nah, you know what? Now we're going to send you to Louisville, Kentucky. And I was like, what the heck am I going to do in Louisville, Kentucky, you know? So somebody will think I'm in the witness protection program or something if I go over there. So I, that I got might hired help. By, yeah, yeah. I got hired by Customs, and, and they told me they'd offer me Miami. So I jumped on the opportunity to go to come here to Miami because I knew Miami was a great place to work. There was a lot, a lot of stuff to do here. 
Yeah, so let's talk about that group. Now, if I'm correct, this is the Bob Starkman group. This is yes, a lot yes. of these guys that I've been talking to. Um, by the way, they all speak very highly of you. No, thank um, you, man. Yeah. Uh, recently, I had Alex on. Um, He's a and, great guy, man. Yeah, so let's talk about going to Miami yeah. because we're talking about 98. Now, of course, with Bob and right. those guys, they're building up through the 80s during Miami Vice, the Cocaine Cowboy right. era. You're coming right. in kind of at the tail end going into the aughts, the 2000s. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and you know what? Guys like... You know when a guy knows what he's doing. You know the se- who the senior guys and who the guys you want to look up to and you want to work with, you know. Bobby was one of those guys, as well as um, uh, Miles' son. I don't know if you, you got a chance to talk to Miles. He, uh, he's guy. coming on he's, in a few weeks. Yeah, he's amazing. I mean, these guys were like cream of the crop. Alex, cream of the crop. You know, those guys, they were running stuff at, at the time, you know, and they were really good. There were other guys as well that were awesome, you know. And I, I was blessed to be able to work with these guys. My first day in in, um, in customs, I show up with a New York. I look like a New York Guinea. You know, I, I got my pinstripe suit on. I had a pinky ring. I had my gold tee, and I walk into the office. And one of the one of the sour guys that worked there, he, he looks at me and he says, "Hey, who the who the is this guy?" You know, you can cuss on here. You go ahead. Oh, you can. I wanted to make sure. Yeah, okay. no, says, absolutely. All right. He says, "Who the fuck is this guy?" And I look at him and I said, "Hi, my name is Lorenzo Toledo. I'm the new ASAC." And who the fuck are you? So he and Bobby's there, you know. So Bobby's looking. Bobby doesn't know who I am either. He doesn't know who I am either at that point. And uh, he goes, oh, my God, sir, I'm so sorry. My, You know, my name is uh, – he tells me his name. I'm really sorry. I didn't mean to offend you. This is what I do. And I say, hey, look, stop, man. I'm just playing with you, man. I'm, I'm a new agent, you know. So Bobby just breaks out laughing. Bobby loses it laughing. And ever since that day – I mean, we we became solid friends, you know. Um, it was funny. It was, it was. I went from buying, like I told you, I wasn't buying that many. The biggest buy I had done was two kilos, you know. The most I ever paid a CI was five thousand dollars, ever. All of a sudden, I'm at this undercover group now, and I'm going along to pay this CI two hundred and fifty thousand dollars on cases prior to me going there. I was just a witness to him getting the payment. I'm like, $250,000. This is crazy. These guys pay that much money. And the dope, the dope buys went from two kilos now to two, three, four, 500 kilos. So it's a whole different level of undercover. It's well, a whole different level. Another question that begs, though, is you come here as customs and you say, I'm a new agent but you're really not a new agent, right? You have undercover experience. I don't think you got put on the boat cruise at all down there, right? No, no, no. Yeah. See, I I went right to an undercover operation. I was the lead undercover. Yeah, exactly. So you come in, you're, you're assigned as the main undercover. You're not new, right? But working with guys like Bobby and all those guys that have been there, done that, they know what they're doing too. Right. How do you make that smooth transition? How do you come in and not tell them I know everything but still right. tell them I know what I'm doing. Right. Well, that that's interesting. That's a great question. I I kind of I kind of pretty much um I told them what I wanted. I'll give you a perfect example. Um, the guy that I replaced over there, uh, who was a really good undercover as well, he had to go for family reasons to Virginia or something like somewhere else, Baltimore. I'm sorry. So one of the uh, younger agents calls me and and tells me, Hey, I wanted to ask you a question. When we're when you're doing an undercover at the warehouse, if things go bad. Somebody pulls a gun on you. You know, the other undercover told us to give him time that he wants to negotiate. I mean, he wants to calm the guy down 
and tell the guy so he can talk himself out of it. And he said, what do you want? I, no, he said, you want to do the same? I said, no. If a guy pulls a gun on me, you shoot and kill the guy. That's what I told him. I'm going to hit the deck, and I expect you guys to come in and kill this guy, you know? I, I'm not waiting around for a negotiation, you know? So it, it was just I, I made sure I told him how I work and I operate. And, and, and one thing that I brought over from ATF that I didn't see in customs was that I wasn't scared to call the deal off if I didn't feel it was right. You know, if I didn't feel the deal was right, I'm calling it off. Well, th- that's an interesting happen. thing because it, it, you know that right. people that are, are antsy and that want to get right. it done and will wait around, right. it's instantly right. known. You're a cop, you're a witness, you're, Absolutely. you're, you're an informant, you're something like right. that. When you go into it and you're not afraid to cancel these deals, how right. much more business does that bring you? It brings me a whole lot of more business because now they know, they feel more confident that I'm not a cop. Because like you said, only cops wait. Cops are the only guys that wait. You know, so or or someone's gonna rip them off. So my persona, as far as on the cover work, I had to change from street, street guy in New York City and New Jersey to now a businessman. And and the whole persona that I had it was my uncle, who happened to be, uh, you know, he, he's our CI, but he was also a pilot, and he he was smuggling tons of of cocaine into Miami. He was my uncle. I had just moved here from Jersey. You know, I had a whole different persona there. I was like, hey, I'm a family guy. I'm bringing these loads in for you guys, but I don't, I'm not involved in this stuff. You know, I just, I just want to make some money. And that helped me a lot. That whole persona, you know, that, that I wasn't really a doper. I wasn't a threat to anybody. I was just here to make some money and help them bring their dope in. It helped me a lot. You know, and, and that's the persona I used over there. So when you use that persona, are you working with, I, I, I guess you would be working with, um, Probably uh, at this time, you're probably working with Alex. Yes. Okay. Yes. So he had told me, and I want you to go into a little more depth about it, about an import-export business. And now I have a card up there where you guys had an entire situation set up where it looked like a real running office and all that kind of stuff. Right. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I we didn't get real in-depth. I want you to talk about how this run, how it's set up, how you're bringing these guys in, and then sure. how you're selling them this bill of goods that is going to end up bad for them. Right. Well, we were doing this, and this was all through our CI. The CI was amazing. He had great contacts. He was setting up and, and, and um, advertising our business to these guys in Colombia, in Peru, saying that we had an import-export business, that we had our containers, that we could send over to the country, they would they would, you know, put their cocaine or heroin into like for example frozen chickpeas. They'd be in the boxes of that, or we had a we had a, a false top as well. They can hide their stuff in there. We would get these things imported into our warehouse. We would separate the cocaine from the you know from the goods, and then they would have to pay us at the time. I think it was three thousand for a kilo of cocaine, and it was uh, forty five hundred per kilo of heroin. So when they came, I already had this, the, the, the heroin or cocaine separated for them. So they'd come to the warehouse. We'd have discussion, little light talk and, and, and so forth. And, but, you know, and there were calls before this where we had met in restaurants or somewhere else that, you know, to kind of get to know each other. And then uh, I would deliver the I'd have another undercover come in with a bag. I would open the bag up uh, and start counting the kilos with these guys. You know, so I had it all on video and camera and everything on audio. And after we count, counted everything and I felt that it was time, I would um, I would give them a sign or something to my guys and they would call me and say, hey, we're coming in. 
So I knew how to position my, where to position myself to get out of the way when these guys were coming in through the door. One of the things I always did was I'd distract the guy to make sure that he had his back to the door so that when my guys come, it would be a surprise and they just tackle the guy and, and nobody gets hurt. You know, and that's, that's, that's something that I always did. And, and you know, you got to know the whole area you're working with there, you know. So that, that was pretty much it, – it's crazy. But we had people that same organized crime, same crew of these narcotics traffickers that would keep coming to get loads. And we tell them, hey, your guy never showed up. What do you mean my guy didn't show up? Your guys didn't show up. I don't know what happened. I got your stuff here. Do you want it or not? And these guys with the greed factor, they'd, st- they'd come and send somebody else. And, and it was crazy. I mean, you know, one time we had a guy that we did that was a ex-federal. He was an ex-Florida Department of Law Enforcement special agent. He was one of their undercovers. And he had gotten arrested for something, and he was out. But he was consulting with these drug tra- traffickers. So he actually, I met him, and he came to my office. And I delivered 100 kilos to him. And it was interesting because as we were doing the count, he didn't want to touch any of the kilos. He didn't want to touch any of them. He had his other guy do it, you know. So he wasn't looking at our bag. And I'm thinking in the back of my mind, this guy's going to try to say that he doesn't know what's in these bags. But, you know, so what I did was I threw a kilo at him. And I said, hey, look how that's packed. And the minute he put his hands on it, it was over for him, you know. So they all played out and, and, and everything went great. And, you know, there was some hairy incidents that happened in the warehouse. Well, that's what all. I was going to ask you. Did yeah. did that did that plan ever go bad for you? It went bad a couple of times. Um, we had we had this guy in our group that, you know, he gives me this bag to deliver. And we had done the same thing to two or three times to the same organization. So they were already hinked up that something was wrong. So. This was a smaller, I think it was 20 kilos or something, 25 kilos. I can't remember. It, was, it wasn't too many kilos this time. And um, he he pulls out a knife and he opened, I opened up the bag where the Coke is. And when I opened up the bag, the case agent left a U.S. Customs uh, audio cassette tape right on top of the kilos, right? So my eyes, you know, like they like a laser beam. They they just went right to that cassette tape because I didn't know if the guy had seen it. He was right next to me. I don't know how he didn't see it. I palmed it right away, and at my backup um, on the cover was a DEA guy. And I just I said, "Hey, put this away, Jimmy." And I threw it at him, and he caught it. And then the guy it happened so fast that the guy didn't know what happened. You know, I told the guy, "Come on, man, I gotta go. I gotta close the warehouse. Let's go." And I got his attention back onto the onto the dope. You know, so luckily for me. You know, he was arrested, but that happened twice. That actually happened three times to me where where guys didn't have consideration for the undercover. You know, and and I had another time where they left a a SWAT van in there, an unmarked SWAT van with all the raid vests and everything else inside the warehouse, you know. And and stuff like that happened a lot of time when I'd have to kick somebody out of my warehouse if I felt it was going to be a rip. Um, uh, The last time that it happened, some guy put um, U.S. Customs evidence tape around one of the kilos. That, you know, showing that it was probed, you know, so I'm telling you, it was crazy. And I started thinking, do these guys want me to die or something? Do they want to get me killed? Because it's funny, the, the word I always said the scariest thing in the world is when you're on the cover and you're watching all your SWAT guys put on all their gear and you don't have any gear. You have nothing. All you have are your wits, you know, and I'd watch those guys and I'd say, man, I wonder if they'd really come in. If, the, you know, if the shit hit the fan, are they coming in for me, you know, so you know, it, it, it was what it was. I mean, I had a great group of guys that I trusted, and and I'm pretty sure they would have done that. But 
there's other times when you get people on loan that they're not part of the of your group and they, they're not going to take it. Then some of them won't take a bullet for you. They're not, you know. So those are things that will cross your mind. Well, when you have that, when you bring these loans in, and um, these these are not small things. You're working with other countries. You're working with right. big time. Once again, right. criminal element. When you bring them in and they don't have that that synergy with that group, they don't know who is Bob and who is Alex right. and who is Lorenzo. Right. How do you bring them in on the fly like that and make an operation right. work? We put them outside. Most of the time, they're not going to be part of that. They're, they're not definitely not going to be part of the arresting. I'll have them on surveillance out there, you know? And, and you know, you know how you have circles of, you know, different protective areas that you have. We keep them on the outer circles because they didn't know what's going on. They're just not going to know how to react the way my guys reacted. You know, I trusted Bobby. I trusted Miles. I trusted Alex with my life. Those are the guys I want covering me. You know, I want guys that I know that they know I would do the same thing for them without hesitation. So those are the guys you always want to work with. But these other guys, you know, you don't know what they're going to do. You know, they just don't have the experience. They don't. Right. You know? and, and that's that's a problem, you know. Well, um, and, and it seemed to happen, um, I don't know about frequently down there, mm -hmm. but definitely more frequently than you would be comfortable with. Right, right. It's funny. When you're dealing with Colombians, this is what I learned. When you're dealing with Colombians, a lot of them are very business-like. So for the most part, it's not going to be a lot of rips. When you deal with like uh, Dominicans or you're dealing with Cubans or you're dealing with Puerto Ricans, the, the, the danger factor increases. It increases. They just, they'll kill you. Where the Colombians want to use you almost like the mob. They don't want to really kill you. They want to, as long as you're generating money for them, they want to keep you around. The other groups, they, they, they just want to kill you and rip you off, you know? And we had a couple of shootings at our warehouses where people tried to rip our guys and they got killed. In fact, I think Alex was lucky enough to not do one. And some, some guy got kidnapped. I think they shoved the gun in the guy's face and broke his front teeth. And luckily for him, he was saved, but it was happening all the time, you know? So, so it was tough. It was a tough time, but I loved the job. I, I loved it. I loved doing that. Loved it. So as you do this 98 to 2002, you're promoted to group supervisor. Right. Now I, I want to ask you the same thing. I kind of asked Alex, uh, he was gone for a while. He went to some other right. countries. He kind of mm -hmm. traveled around the world and then he came back as a supervisor. Right. So you're with these guys, you go there in 98 as a quote unquote new agent. Four years later, you're going to be a group supervisor. You right. have this experience behind you. How do you work with those guys that you were just palling around with? Now you're their boss. And I ask Alex the same thing. How do you do it? Right. It, it's interesting. It's a great question. Um, when I took over the group, I took over the firearms export um, team that we had. So we were doing pretty much weapons trafficking, right? And um, I had a bunch of guys that were not in my group. So that they didn't work with me in the undercover group. So it was a kind of a fresh start for me. I had some guys that were there that they were kind of, uh, they were kind of uh, upset that I got the supervisor job and they didn't, but they kept forgetting that I was a senior agent with ATF before I came, you know? So like you had mentioned earlier, to some of the guys I was new, I only had four years on when in fact I had a lot more experience than most of the guys there, you know? So, um, you know, it's tough when you do that. I know that position. I think that's the worst thing you could do is become a supervisor in the same group you work because it, it just people, they're going to say right away, you changed, you changed. And you know what? Heavy lies the head that wears the crown. There is people that change. 
There's people that completely become, you know, there's guys that become idiots when they become supervisors. Do you think you changed? No, I don't mean to never, that level. Do you think you changed yeah. at all? No. One thing that I pride myself on was the fact that my guy said I never changed. Okay. You know, I never changed, you know, and, and I, my, what I learned from being a supervisor, I learned from Dominic, number one, was you as your supervisor, your job is to protect your group. And every, every victory that they have is their victory. Every, every uh, defeat they have is your defeat. You know, and, and that was what I wanted to be. I wanted to be, I wanted to always look myself in the mirror and say, you know what? I would have worked for you too, you know, and always be that guy that's willing to take the hit for the team and, and, uh, and not take glory for anything, you know? And, and I think that I worked for some really bad supervisors, you know, that didn't feel that way. Absolutely. That it was about them. And, and I, and I worked for a couple of really good supervisors, but I can tell you this, as time moved on in my career, there were less and less and less of supervisors that went to bat for their guys. And there was more guy, there was more supervisors that would throw you under the bus in a heartbeat. And, and that's one of the reasons why I wanted to get out at the end. I was disgusted. You know, it was crazy. But you, you got to know, Lorenzo, that you as one person can't change that. Right. And with you being a good boss and leaving. Right. Don't you think that, 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 uh, screws the goat a little more for those guys? Because you don't, who they had good there is now gone. Right. Now they're just surrounded by idiots. You know what happened though? What I what I found that was going on over there was that new agents that were coming in were different than when we all started. Like we wanted to do the job. We actually wanted to do the job. These guys just wanted to get promoted. They were more worried about what cars they were getting and, and how fast they could go to headquarters to get promoted. So, you know, you didn't see a lot of guys anymore. A lot of the newer agents didn't want to do the job anymore. Right. And, and, you know, you know, especially what's going on today. Now being a cop is the worst, it's the worst time in the world to be a police officer right now. You know, we're definitely, uh, you know, not respected and, and it's terrible what's going on right now. You know, in fact, my son wanted to be wanted to follow my steps in law enforcement and I encouraged him to get into the air force and he's serving now in Okinawa and, and you know, he's going to, he's going to try to go federal with the office of special investigations with the air force. But you know, it's crazy what's going on. The whole society's changed for us. You know, we're the bad guys. Yeah, we're the bad guys. And yeah. God help you if you shoot you if you shoot somebody, you better be right. You better be a hundred percent right because so, if not, you're done. Let, let's go to that because I still yeah. want to go through your career, but you bring sure. that up, so let's talk about it. Right, that kind of stuff that you're talking about, you better be one hundred percent right. Which absolutely, in every shoot, right. you should be one hundred percent right. Right, a hundred percent. Yeah, you're right, but. Today, it's the court of public opinion. It's not the right. court of law. So you right. look back at during Operation Greenback and Bobby's time and Joe right. Pistone's right. time and Ralph right. Friedman's time, where right. it was just as, I would say, just as wild back then with uh, being able to handle the situation at a, I guess you would say, a better more violent. I don't want to use that, but being able yeah. to take care of a situation where you went home at the end of the night. Now right. you have the court of public opinion. Right. So once again, I'll pose the question to you, just like I did earlier, where was that switch? Where was the disconnect that pushed us over to that? You know, I, I again, I, I, I blame social media for that. I, I, I blame, um, it, it's crazy, man. The elections had a lot to do with that. The way that, uh, you know, Republicans were hated for a while. You know, we would look like everything that was wrong with this country. 
and, and then the the uh, Democrats where everything was was right and they wanted to defund the police and they wanted to do all this stuff, you know. I grew up at a time, I'm 60 now. I remember growing up as a kid, I used to watch All in the Family. I used to watch Good Times, the Jeffersons. There was more, like, all different races got along, you know, as far as we could all make fun of each other, you know. You would think that now, all this time after, we'd be all over all, all that stuff, you know, but we're not. It's, it's gone back 40 years. You know, if, you know, if a white cop shoots a black cop, a guy, God help him. God help him. He's got to be 200% right now, not just 100. You know, and, and that it's just the way it is right now. It, it's a fact. And it's, it's, a sad, it's a sad fact. I mean, you watch these cops that are defending themselves, and you hear the social media saying, well, why did he shoot him? He didn't have to shoot him. The guy pulled out a knife. He wasn't going to stab him or whatever it is. You know, and it's like, are you kidding me? You know, these guys don't get it. They don't understand that, that hey, we want to go home too. We deserve to go home to our families. And, and that's the thing. I, I don't know what made it change. And I hope to God it changes again one day. But right now, man, it's like this, this country has no, there's no morals anymore. It's, it's, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. Well, and, th- and that was my next question to you. Do yeah. you ever think that pendulum swings back? I hope so. I, ho- I think it will. I think time always, I, I had an old professor in college used to say that, like even with clothes and styles, you know, if you've got a big wheelbarrow and you put your clothes in, that after 20 years, you turn that barrel around and, and that stuff that you had in the bottom is now going to be in style, you know, and I think it'll happen again. But at what extreme do we have to get for it to change? That's the, that's the question. You know, I, I don't know what it's going to take. Yeah. Um, I, I, I tell you, I, I have the utmost respect for and I've always had for, for military and for law enforcement my whole life. And, and you know, it, it's the toughest time for a law enforcement officer, I believe, you know, because what you were, were alluding to earlier the times of the Starkmans and all these other guys, you had to take care of business sometimes, you know, and sometimes it wasn't pretty, but you took care of business. You can't do that anymore. You can't, you know, you got to be careful. So let me put more of a grim picture on it then with it turning into this. Right. Does it get better before it gets worse or does it get worse before it gets better? I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. Unfortunately, I really do. You know, and, and again, Listen, I'm an old dinosaur now. The undercovers that I was doing was that I was doing back then. You couldn't do that anymore. You can't. Right. You can't do it because they'll burn you in a second. Now with all the in social media, with all, all the advances they have, you know, there's no way that you're going to be able to. I mean, you'd have to almost get a, a fully backstopped by the CIA to be able to do something now. You know, people can find out exactly who you are. So there's not undercovers anymore. You don't see that anymore. Very, at least not in the feds. They'll use task force guys, but. Nobody wants to do undercover because it was always a thankless job. You never got promoted doing undercover work. You got a nice car, you know, you got to drive around and act real cool. But unless you were a case maker, you were never going to get promoted. And we had a lot of guys that never made cases and they never got promoted. They were great on the covers, but they never, they never got promoted. Well, with, with this that we're talking about, with this technology, you have to have a full backstop now and stuff. Right. Let's talk about the difference in now. We'll just use money laundering. Or right. we can use narcotics trafficking. Mm-hmm. You're looking at all these cash apps. Everything is done digitally now, especially right. money laundering. You know, right. being in the corporate world, how things are mm-hmm. moving around from the right. internet. There's no real money anymore. It's all ones right. and zeros. Right. So with that, we have digital trails, but it seems almost more difficult to trace a digital trail than to right. chase an actual cash trail. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's with Bitcoin. Yeah. Bitcoin. You have Shiba. I mean, there's a ton of different ones. You have Cash App. You have Venmo. You have all these different things. Where do you think law enforcement needs to go in order to catch up to this? Because I 1000% believe we are catching up to this technology. We are, we are, and, and, and thankfully so. What I believe is that you're going to see a lot more officers with uh, advanced degrees that are familiar with cyber. You're going to get guys that are hopefully applying for the job and want to get involved. I mean, a lot of that is, is guys that are, that are in there with their computers and they know, they know how to do it. I mean, listen, my kid knows more about computers than I know. You know, we, I didn't grow up during the internet time. You know, I didn't know what an internet was. These kids that are growing up now, they know that internet. They know, they know how to work on, on on all that stuff. You know, and and that's what we need. We need people like that to come in and help us with that. I mean, or else it's we're going to have a big problem. We here's really the, are. Here's the problem with that, though. You talk about having these advanced degrees and being able to come in. Mm-hmm. Who with an advanced degree is going to come do this job? You just said it's the most thankless job in the world. Right. It is. It, it is. It is. It, but you know what happens? I think a lot of times. It helps you in your resume if you have time with a federal agency or a local department or something. You have time in cyber; it'll actually help you get a better job. Yeah, in the private sector. Absolutely, yeah. On you know? on the backside of it, absolutely. On the I backside, agree with you. you know. So, and and you know what? What you'd never see before, and, I, and what you'd never see is a guy leaving the job. Guys would stay until they had their pensions. Now you don't. Now you see guys with five, ten years leaving sometimes. Well, because they've been offered better jobs. And that's what I was going to say, though. Yeah. Yes, they get better jobs with this cyber. But once right. again, you get back to the problem where you have constant turnover and you right. still that's continue true. playing that game of catch up because you have right. these guys that finally because let's be honest, Lorenzo, you didn't learn the undercover job. You didn't learn the job in general, how to talk to right. people in two years, in right. four years. It Ab- took you absolutely five, not. eight, ten right. years to just get your feet underneath you. Absolutely. Absolutely. If, if you have that turnover at five, 10, I'm not even going to go up to 15. When you have that turnover so bad, you never get steady footing. Right. Yeah. That's a good point. That's a very good point. Maybe we can contract people to do it, you know? It's just, you know what? The government doesn't want to pay. So they're going to have to revamp their pay. And that's one thing they're going to have to do. You know, they're going to have to pay a lot better if they want to really compete and, and be involved. Because those guys, I mean, you, you go on LinkedIn right now and you look for, if you have a cyber background, sky's the limit for you. You, know, you can dictate what you're going to make, your salary is going to make. You know, when I grew up, if you were in cyber, which was way after, you were a nerd. You were no good on the street. You weren't doing warrants. You were, you were, listen, let's face it. Back then, those guys were nerds. They were geeks, you know? And Intel analysts. And we all, yeah, Intel. Yeah, we were like, ah, these guys are not real cops, you know? <laughs> you know what? They won at the end. <laughs> you know, uh, the guys that were out there, you know, the knuckle draggers now, they're having a tough time finding a job, you know? And, and it's tough. But these other guys that were doing uh, fraud and they were doing white collar crime and they were doing cyber, they're all finding real good jobs, you know? So it's tough. It's tough. In the final part of your career, I want to cover two different things. I want to cover when you're the Caribbean attache. um, Mm -hmm. And then I want to talk about when you come back uh, as an, uh, as a supervisor and you're the violent gangs task force in Miami. Right. But let's start with the Caribbean. 
in all these years, have you worked out of the country until you get this job or were you based out of Miami, New York? Was there much working um, out of the country? There was, there was, because when I was doing the undercover, there was, and I would go to Venezuela or Colombia. I'd go to those countries a lot, meet with bad guys and, and set up meets and, and so forth, you know? With the attache job, I was like the liaison officer for all the Homeland Security cases that were happening in, in all these different Caribbean countries. So I put the domestic cases, I put them with the, our embassy uh, folks and try to coordinate those investigations with them. Um, and that's what I was doing as the, as the Caribbean attache. Um, but yeah, I had been before. I had been before in Latin America. And that's where the question comes in. You're right. there working undercover, setting up deals, a completely different job from being a man in a business suit, shaking hands and making sure that the governments are taken care of between the two right. and being that middleman. So right. as you do that and you come over, your entire career has been based in the field, based on undercover, yeah. based mm -hmm. on being a certain kind of guy. Now you have to flip the switch and you have to be that suit. Right. How do you right. do it? And is it I, hard? I, it is hard. It is hard to do, but you know what I did? I got involved in all the cases. Like I got myself engaged in the cases. I never micromanaged anybody because I hated to be micromanaged. But what I tried to do is show my guys that I actually had a genuine interest, which I did have on their cases. So I had my own group of guys that we did cases, you know, for me. And, and then we, we helped the other people. But, you know, I, my reputation helped me a lot because people knew that I was a good guy and I wasn't trying to, I wasn't the kind of guy that's going to get people in trouble. You know, I was always going to try to solution and try to help people. So, you know, your reputation follows you, man, it, wherever you go. And, and I had a good reputation and I was able to bring that over to the Caribbean attaché's office. I was able to also handpick the people I wanted. So I had guys that I trusted that I knew were really good. And I, and I was blessed. Actually, I was blessed to have them working there. They made my job way, way easier. Um, I had to go to Haiti during the earthquake. I was there for six weeks. Yeah, I saw some of the photos from it. Yeah, yeah, man. And that, that experience was crazy because I, I, I come into the office one day, the earthquake happens, and the next day I'm on a plane. And I'm spending six weeks over there, you know, and, and seeing the very worst of the worst things you could possibly think of seeing, you know. And, and it, 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 was, it was an enlightening it, – it made me appreciate this country so much more when I got back. Um, I saw so many dead bodies. I saw so much despair, so much depression. I mean, those six weeks, it was like if my life, it makes any sense, my life was in black and white. And I remember when I landed back in, in, in the U.S., I, the first thing I saw were those palm trees in green. And it's like everything. It was like a TV that was black and white that all of a sudden got converted into color. You know? And I just came back, and I was a lot more appreciative and more humbled by the by that that experience, you know? And And – that I'm there. I take that with me to forever. I think you know of dealing with that. I got. I was the person responsible. There were guys that were being sent there for no reason, and sleeping. Our agents in deplorable conditions, deplorable. And I was one of the guys that insisted that they get out of there for their own safety. Um, so and, what, you know, what is customs doing there? Well, it was Homeland Security when this happened. Okay, it, it was actually Homeland Security. We were there to assist in the protection of the airport. Okay. Because this is, this is at that time where Alex, mm -hmm. all these guys are telling me that things kind of went to shit with customs and HSI and there, there became a new mission set and all yeah. that kind of stuff. Oh, and this it, is it where was, it went downhill. It went downhill. The minute that nine 11 happened after nine 11, everything went terrible because they merged customs 
with immigration. And immigration agents were a step below us. They, they had a grade under us, you know, so they were all promoted right away. So guys that were 12s over there got promoted to 13s. 14 supervisors, 13 supervisors with them got promoted to 14s. And they had to promote all these people, so they cut us out of any promotions. And it, the job absolutely made, I mean, we were going on surveillances and these guys were stopping at red lights because they were part of a union. So they're like, oh no, we can't, we can't, you know, so they didn't want to do anything, you know, and, and I'm sure they, they, there was a lot of resentment where we didn't talk to the immigration guys and they didn't talk to us. And well, it took years. Even Alex was mentioning that, that, uh, when he's over and he's trying to explain what his job is being yeah. like an attache that, right. yes, I work for customs, but I also work for Homeland security. And here's right, what we right. can do for you with our Homeland security. And this is what we can do with that. Do you think that hurt the war on drugs, the war on weapons Absolutely. coming in? Absolutely. We wasted too much time with that. That was a complete waste of money. On top of that, we went through three different uh, badges and names. You know, we were going to call ourselves, um, I forgot what the name was going to be, but FBI complained because they said it was too familiar. It's, they didn't want acronyms for us, you know, or something like that. They, they, we, FBI was upset because they didn't want us to take over, you know, them, you know, they were worried. And, and, it, and I'll tell you what happened when they did all this, they, they bowed down to FBI because we weren't doing terrorist investigations in Homeland Security. We're not doing them, no. you know, FBI is doing that. So, and rightfully so. Right. Absolutely. I agree hundred percent. So, you know, here we are, we almost were like an agency and we didn't know what our mission was, you know, and, and it's gotten better, I guess, for them, for the agents now, uh, because now it's all merged together and, and immigration is a good tool to have to flip somebody because a lot of these guys don't want to get deported. You know, so right. it's a great, it's an extra tool, you know, in your tool belt. But that was the worst experience in my whole career was having to deal with that nonsense at the time. There was just so much animosity in the office. It was, it was insane. Insane. But, we had, we had fist fights between, uh, you know, the whole thing. Yeah. Let me play devil's advocate for a minute. Don't you think though, how you say, yeah, it, it's, that's a very good thing to flip someone is the immigration status and things like right. that. But don't you think you had just as good as incentives working customs and drugs and guns? Absolutely. Because yeah. at that time, you could get large sentences yeah. coming across to the amount of drugs. Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, that's the only good thing I could think of the, the merger is to maybe use that tool. But other than that, I mean, you know, and I, I, I got to say that there's some immigration guys that were great investigators. Um, listen, we had guys in, in, in customs that were useless. So every agency does, right? Every department has that. So we had a, we had a lot of useless guys, but you know, <laughs> immigration a lot more, I think, you know, and and it was it was a bad time for 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 customs and for for us. It was a really bad time for us. You know, we were they were putting supervisors on our in our groups and drug groups that were immigration guys that had no clue what they were doing, and that's how you get somebody hurt. You know, it's, it's, it's the guys that don't want to admit that they don't know something that end up hurting, getting people hurt, you know? Right. All right. So let's move on to the violent gangs task force. Now mm -hmm. looking at, uh, we're looking at like 2012 at this time frame. Right. You've done your business in other countries. So you've seen things right. firsthand, but you come back right. here. Now Miami is kind of the gateway for violent drugs. You've got MS-13, right. Zopounders. You've got the cartels right. that are trying to take over what the Colombians had in Miami. 
you have El Salvadorians, you have a large port of entry into the United mm-hmm. States that is almost exclusively importing their criminals. Mm-hmm. 100%. How do you take on something like that? Because not only are you fighting the importation of them because they're not coming in and checking in at the gate. They're right. coming in through different means, but you're also fighting people that don't want the borders closed down. You're also right. fighting uh, criminal statutes that you're taking these people into custody, pushing them across the border, and they're coming right back across because there's no teeth in the law behind it. So facing all those things, I say that to say this, how do you attack that problem? Because this was a huge task force that you were part of. Right. Well, it, you know what? Uh, it was tough. It was tough to do that. I mean, we had cases, like you said, we had Zopound cases. We had some MS-13 cases. And we pretty much handled the cases as, as they came on a case-by-case basis. We had informants. We were making gun buys from these guys. We were doing narcotics purchases from the, these guys. Going up on some phones, on some local street gangs as well that were very violent. And, and you know, we just took the cases one day at a time. The problem with immigration law is it changes constantly. You know, they, they, they have a law and then the next day it changes. So it, it was very frustrating for us. So we kind of leaned more on the on the narcotics and, and things that we knew how to do other than the immigration stuff, because there was so much sympathy for immigration that it was it was pathetic, to be honest. with You know, and it's gotten worse now. So, you know, it, it was it was something that we can't we couldn't really rely on. We couldn't, you know. And like you said, these guys, you, you get them deported. They'd be back. They'd be back in, in 60 days. You'd see them again on the street. You know, and, and we would always call the local cops. We'd go out with them and say, hey, and these guys that you see back, let us know. And we'll go out there and pick them up, you know. And it's funny because that wasn't our job, really. It was the job of um, ICE, Immigration Customs Enforcement, not us, to pick these guys up. HSI tried to break away from uh, Immigration and Customs Enforcement. And they, those are the guys that were like the detention officers. And they would go out and, and, and grab these guys, and, you know, and, and, and do that for us, you know. So... You know, we did raids. We, we would do operations with a lot of local departments. We worked a lot with the locals, which is I always felt that the locals, no one knows a, their city better than a local. Right. I mean, not a federal for, for sure. So I, I always loved working. Oh, that's with the locals. definitely Bob Starkman yeah. talking right there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, and that's a fact, you know, I mean, you know, there's nothing better than working with locals, in my opinion. You know, and, and you learn so much by doing that. So that's what we we're doing in gang groups. I mean, I had I had a bunch of alpha males. And I almost, my job there was to control them, you know, uh, so that they wouldn't get jammed up. Because I used to tell these young guys, listen, man, you know, if you guys get jammed up, don't expect this agency to back you up. I said, I'll back you up, but they're not going to back you up. So we're all going to go down, you know, and that's what I'll tell them. I said, be careful, man. Make sure that you have your your ducks in order, you know, because they will do you. They will do you. And and that's the, the attitude I always have with my guys. I mean. You know, we had some shootings. We had we had some things that happened, and and we were able to to walk out. You know, with no no one. You know, I think one of my agents got some days off. You know, that was it for something. You know, but nobody nobody lost their job. Nobody under my watch ever lost their job. You know, and and it's funny because when I knew I was retiring, I'll tell you a funny story. When I was retiring, I knew I was leaving anyway. So one of my guys was in his car, and he happens to see. Um, these two cops chasing this this guy. So my guy gets out of the car and he sucker punches the guy. And knocks him down. That's like he breaks the guy's face and the guy's bleeding everywhere. And these guys had the cops had their cameras on, you know. So he tells me, "Hey, what do I do?" And I said, "Listen, 
you're not you you, you told your supervisor right he says yeah i said that's as far as it's going to go i said you tell them that you told me what happened it's my job to report it i'm not reporting it because they're going to try to do you you know i know how internal affairs works i said i'm not gonna let that happen you know so it, it it died with me and luckily nothing ever happened you know nothing ever happened but those are the kind of guys i had that they they were crazy they were just <laughs> we were like the bad news bears in that office you know we were that that crew that nobody wanted to work with us because we were too much on the street and salty and, and it was good time. I loved it though. You know? So as you retire and you move on, you decide yes. that you're going to train Hollywood elite how to right. be undercovers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you also become an actor yourself. Right. I got to know though, how hard is it to come from the job you did to working mm-hmm. with people like that? teaching them how to be undercovers it's it's like going imagine uh it's like going to never neverland man it's just they live in such a different life that we live i remember when i um i would go to on the set of, of miami vice and i'd get back home after being in heaven you know i'd be catered people treating me like a king there and and i get home and my wife say hey throw out the garbage and I'd have to go back to reality, you know? I'd have to go back, I'm a nobody, you know? I go, oh man, I, I can't be part of this world of these guys, you know? And, and I, I never forget that feeling, you know? But uh, I'm glad I got a chance to see that side of the world. And uh, it was interesting. It was interesting training Colin Farrell and Jamie Foxx. They, they both they both had a different uh, perspective of what we taught them. Um, Colin Farrell was more open to show his mistakes. He didn't have a problem with it. Uh, Jamie, uh, Jamie Foxx was too cool. He didn't want to show the things he messed up. You know, he didn't want a video that out there where actually in the movie, they had the, the making of, of, of Miami Vice, the movie, it shows actually what, what we, we did. We did and, and did this undercover school for these guys. It was interesting. Do you want to talk about the Colin Farrell thing? I don't know if you've yeah. talked about that anywhere else, but I, I, yeah. I, I watched the video. It's pretty interesting right. to see. Yeah. So I, I get a request from Michael Mann, the director of the movie. And, and you know, Colin Farrell was very cocky during the training. So he tells me, hey, man, let me ask you something. Do you think you could put something together where this guy thinks he's doing a real undercover? And I said, absolutely, I can do that. You know, just give me a couple of days. So I, what I did was I ended up getting some old surveillance stuff. I spoke to Alex. Alex had a big part in this as well with me. Um, we concocted this scenario where there had been purchases made from these, uh, these two guys that were Colombians and there was no, there was no issues because we had done deals with them. So we, there was not going to be any issues. We told these guys and they're going to come back and, and we're going to do another pickup. And so I'm there. I, I had, I had a, a surveillance pictures of the airport of crew workers. I had everything set up, you know, and we actually took pictures of Alex in different cafeterias in, in Miami. And we, you know, we we showed it and say, hey, that's our target. That's the guy we're looking at. So he bought it hook, line, and sinker, you know. And um, so I was going to do the undercover with him, and Alex was going to be the bad guy. So Alex, it was Alex and another agent that we had that he looked like a stone cold killer. And we do this this undercover operation, and and uh, there's a dispute in the middle of the operation, and Alex tells Colin Farrell, hey man, how do I know you're not a cop? How do I know you're not a cop? And he rips his shirt off and he says, he says, I'm not a cop. I'm not a cop, you know? So it, it was great, you know, because after Alex leaves and now I stay in the warehouse with him and he tells me, Oh my God, I can't believe I just did this. 
This is the most adrenaline. He said, I was shitting in my pants. I've never done anything like this before. We had to go out for drinks after that. You know, we actually went out to a, to a it's funny. We went out to a local, um, what was it? I don't know. One of those places, like a Chili's. We went out to a Chili's to get some, and it came out in the news the next day that Colin Fryer was at Chili's. So anyway, that night he calls up uh, Michael Mann, Michael Mann, and he tells Michael, I can't sleep, man. I need to talk to uh, Lorenzo. They couldn't get a hold of me, so they called my boss. And you know he couldn't sleep at night he was freaking out so they decided to tell him the next day in the airport that it was it was that we you know we set him up and he got punked and uh and you know he was he was he was a gentleman about it he took it very well and and it worked out really it was a lot of fun i mean i spent two months on the set with alex so it was good times yeah uh i had seen that and i actually saw the video uh i'm gonna yeah. try and add that somehow into your page on on the website right. when your episode comes out because it's absolutely hilarious to watch yeah, it's that. Hilarious. And then, yeah. you know, for it to go on further. And and I think the reason that it's so funny is because you see these guys on TV and, and in right. movies and they think, oh, these guys are naturals. Right. They're not naturals at all. There's They're 150 all, takes. And you right. had one take your whole career, right. you know. And, exactly. And and that was the way that it gets taken care of, especially like when you're saying you're opening up the package, there's tapes in right. there, there's there's right. all kinds of stuff. You guys have one take and and you've got right. to make it work. Right, exactly. And and it's funny because again, uh we did a similar incident with Jamie Foxx, but he didn't want to show it. He didn't want to let it go, but he he almost had a heart attack. <laughs> he almost had a heart attack, you know. I'm one we pulled a gun on him. We were doing a car to car buy, and I had one of the guys creep up on the other on his side. And he didn't notice because he was focused on the transaction. And that's what we did on purpose. And we just had one of the local TFOs stick a gun right in his face, and you know his his head, the top of his head hit the. I thought he was going to make a hole right through the, the top of the car, you know. And uh, he was he was also nervous and going crazy, but he didn't want to show that. Um, yeah, those guys, you know, they they they're actors, you know, they're actors, and they get paid for what they do, but. You know what we all do is law enforcement. Like you said, there's no there's no second take. You know, and every deal you do, you take home with you. People don't understand the like I used to have nightmares at night when I would do these undercovers that I had to pull my gun on somebody and it wouldn't fire. And I've talked to other undercovers about that, and they've also had the same dream where the gun just doesn't fire. You know, so this affects you. It definitely affects you. And and you know you remember your mindset. You remember what you went through. You know, I had small kids. That you don't know if you're going to come home after doing one of these undercovers. You just don't know. And, uh, you know, you pray to God that you come home at the end of the day because I don't care how good you are doing undercover. You can get killed anytime. Um, and that goes for any other undercovers out there for any of us. You know, so it's a tough job. It is a tough job. Well, I'm glad that you mentioned that. We talk about mental health a lot on right, this right, and, and the right. effects of it after yeah. after it all is said and done and during it. We see a lot right. of divorces. Uh, you and right. I have talked about that. We see a lot of depression. Yeah. We see a lot of alcohol, right. pills, things like that. Can we right. talk a little bit about how all of this throughout your career affected you? If it did bad, if it, did, if it didn't affect you that much, but you're feeling effects of it now, I just want to kind of talk about how you've dealt with it throughout your yeah. long career. Right. It affected me without a doubt. I mean, my first marriage ended in divorce. Um, it affected me a whole lot because again, like after you're doing undercover, like if you go to a restaurant, for example, you got to go in first. You don't want your family going in with you. Cause then if the guy's there or one of the guys are there, you know, you can get killed or anything could happen. So I would have to go into the restaurant first, scan the place. I'd have to sit all the way in the back. 
with my back facing the wall every time. At night, I would sleep with a gun, a loaded gun under my pillow. Uh, and, and these are things that, that I went through, you know, that you don't forget, all the nightmares that you have when you're doing all this undercover work. So absolutely, it's, it's draining. It's exhausting because you're sitting at night trying to figure out every possible scenario that can happen and what you're going to do if it happens. So I would sit there thinking like, like playing chess. If this happens, I'm going to do this. Or if this guy moves that way, I'm going to try to move to this side of my warehouse or on the street in a car. I'm going to drive out. I'm going to jump out of the car. Just different scenarios that you think about, you know. And I would say to everybody, you know, it's the problem that we all have is on the covers that action is always going to be quicker than reaction. So if the guy's going to rip you off. You're going to get ripped off. And, and, and you know, you're probably going to, you know, you just you hopefully you don't get killed. But that it's tough to, to anticipate that. It's hard. I mean, you have to have all your six senses on. You know, you have to be. You have to have all the antennas up to know something's wrong, and you have to listen to those feelings. When, those, when you get goosebumps and that little voice inside of you that says, hey, man, this is not good, you got to be brave enough to walk away and say, I'm not doing this deal. And, and a lot of the agents that are doing undercover that are young are, are scared. They, they're going to be labeled as you know weak by doing that. you know, And um, that's a problem. Because no, absolutely not. If you don't, if you feel there's something wrong, you walk away from that. You know, there's another day for that. So yeah, it affected me. It affected me a lot. I mean, I had a, a, especially when I um during the end of my career. You know, I, I was feeling a lot of anxiety. I one time I was taking some anxiety medication, and I was I got off all that stuff. But yeah, it it definitely affected me. You know, and I can imagine. I like I like to talk to undercovers to just let them know what I've been through. And, 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 you know, we had a good thing in ATF. I don't know if Customs or HSI, I don't think they had it, but that guy, Alex Diatri, that was shot five times and almost killed, um, and his partner was killed, he went out to every shooting that ATF had, and he would, you know, he would, he would talk to the guys and see what they're going through. And, and that, I think, is really important. And people don't pay enough attention to that. And it's the same as being in, in a war, in a war zone. I mean, our military troops, you know, um, and rightly so, are always honored, you know, and, I, and I, I'm a super uh, supporter. But for whatever reason, our, our first responders aren't, you know, um, and it's a shame. I mean, I remember going out. We, had, I, I had a Navy SEAL Team 6 guy, and he was SEAL, SEAL Team 6, legit, from here, from Miami. He went out with us on an operation. We had a gang operation as an observer. He wasn't allowed to, you know, to do anything. He was just watching. And I remember at the end, at, end of the night, we had a post briefing, and, and he said, I don't know how you guys do this. Uh, what, I said, what do you mean? He goes, you know, we, we wouldn't take the chances you guys take. You know, when we get an operation, we're taking people out. You know, so he said, like, when you guys went into that house, I'm not doing that. I'm going to throw a couple of grenades in there, you know. And, and so it, it, it's just different. We can't do that. Law enforcement, we, we can't do that. So it's, it's a different job. But I'm saying it's, it's, a, it's such a hard job that people don't. It's a thankless job. People don't understand that. Yeah, uh, and and I don't, for the foreseeable future, see that changing. I want to no. ask something else about your career. Did that character or that person that you were playing, did that ever bleed over into family life? Um, for me, no, and only because I had done so much reading and learned so much from the, from the books I read on undercover work that it didn't happen to me, you know? So before I did any of this, I was I was doing my own research on it. I was reading books. I was trying to find out. And I saw what they all went through. And I made sure to keep the, the two separate. Another thing that you see a lot with undercover is that they trust their CIs way too much. Like I can't tell you how many guys, how many guys got jammed up with female CIs, 
you know, having, uh, you know, whatever, having relationships with them or, or, or bringing them over to their houses to meet their family. You know, it, there's got to be a separation there. You can't do that, you know. And, and in fact, in one of the cases we did in Bergen County, working with this guy that was a bank robber, he was a real bad guy. And, and my, my partner at the time fell in love with this guy. He thought he was the greatest thing in the world. And one of the deals we we're going to do, the guy gets out of the car and then knows he's got a, he's got a holster on with a gun. This is a CI. And I said, whoa, 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 what, what's going on here? He goes, no, nah, he's good. Don't worry about it. I said, no, nah, dude, we're not doing this. And, and I, he, was, he stopped talking to me for about a year, the guy. I didn't, I didn't blow him up. I didn't give him up. But I said, we're not doing this deal. And this guy's not – if he carries a gun again, I'm going to lock him up myself. So he fell in love with the guy. He thought the guy was the greatest thing since sliced bread. He's a CI. He, these CIs give each other up. So I wasn't going to risk my, my, my job for that stuff, you know. So, right. yeah, you see a lot of cops get jammed up for these CIs, and it's not worth it, you know. Well, let's talk about what you're doing right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, now I was luck. You uh, are acting. You're a judge for boxing and MMA. You're a global yeah. security director. You're a busy man. I I have a feeling you're busier now than you were. Yeah, I am when, when you had a full time job. Yeah. yeah, I was lucky with with the job in Pfizer because one of the best supervisors that ever. In fact, he was he was starting supervisor. Uh, and Miles supervisor. No, I'm sorry. He was Starkman supervisor. This guy by the name of Wayne Roberts, who's a legend in customs. He was a good old boy from Kentucky, but he spoke perfect Spanish. In fact, I think that was his major in college. So this guy was John Wayne. He was one hell of a cop and a great supervisor. He had, when he retired, he went to work for Pfizer. So they were looking for somebody to be the director of global security over there. And, um, I was blessed enough to, to get that interview with him. And, 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 you know, I did pretty good in the interview. So I, I kept going, moving on to the next phase, the next phase. I think it was four different interviews. In fact, the guy that was in charge of, of compliance of global security for Pfizer at the time was my former SAC when I was in Miami. And he, he's the guy that had promoted me to group supervisor. So he knew me and, and I was just blessed to be at the right time at the right place. And I got this job. And, and what I do now there is I do counterfeiting investigations in South America. Primarily in South America, where these guys, you know, they make counterfeit investigate, you know, they, they make counterfeit like heart medication and cancer medication and, and stuff like that. That you, I never even thought that would happen. Yet it happens in South America. So my job is to, we have these contracted vendors over there. We set up uh, buys from these people. We, we coordinate with the local law enforcement over there. We, they go up on their phones and, and we just give them all the information we can and support their investigations. And, We've had a much success with that hitting clandestine labs in South America. So it's almost like still being involved in law enforcement. Yeah, but most yeah. definitely. I mean, yeah. and, and once again, you're talking about it's a different era of crime. Right. It, right. It, it's, exactly. it's just a progression of crime. Uh, right. Who ever thought 20 years ago that fake medication would be out there? Right. Yeah. I never thought, again, yeah, you're 100% right. I would never think that would be an issue. I remember the fake Viagra's. You know, and that's like a laugh, you know, ha, 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 you know, Viagra, don't, it's, it's, it wasn't Viagra, it was, it was cancer medications and, and like I was saying, heart medications, diabetes medications, you know, these people, and that's, that would always be my pitch to the cops over there when I would do presentations overseas, you know, I'd say, listen, guys, these are your family members that are getting this counterfeit medication. These guys are going after your family members, you know, and that's the way I was able to get a lot of um, cooperation with the, you know, with law enforcement over there. 
because it's different from working here. They're, they're a whole different. I mean, you got to show up with money to buy, make buys and do everything else if you want anything to happen in South America. They're not going to get, they're not spending a dime to make buys. Yeah. And, and the, the FDA regulations are completely yeah. different. Pill right, presses right. over there are probably a dime yeah. a dozen. A dime a dozen. And a lot of them are homemade. They know how to make these things. Right. So, so it's, it's, it's a, it's a whole different avenue of, of investigation for me now. Yeah. A, a big one that they're seeing in law enforcement in the United States is fentanyl getting pressed into stuff Absolutely. that's supposed to be hydrocodone or whatever. Right. And it's actually fentanyl. Right. So. Right. Right. It's crazy. It's crazy. Some of the things that you see, you know, and, and, uh, it's it, it's still very rewarding to me because I'm helping people. I think we all got on this job to help people. And, and you know, it's, for me, I feel like I'm making a difference. So I, I enjoy the job. I'm glad you said that because that's my last question for you is looking back over to your career and thinking back to when you're 12 years old. Right. Are you proud of the accomplishments? Do you think you did what you set out to do? Yes, I do. I feel good about my accomplishments. I, I, uh, there was a couple of cases that, that I'll never forget that I, I saved, you know, I was able to save, for example, I, when I was at ATF, I saved, uh, a family, a family in Pennsylvania. We had a guy we were buying guns from and, uh, the guy disappeared off the face of the, of the earth for about three, three months. And out of nowhere, we get a call that the guy was in jail in Pennsylvania and we go visit the guy and he says, Hey, give me an address. I'm going to send you a letter. He sends us a letter how he wants us to kill this family of four because he had raped this girl. And now she was going to testify against him. So they were living in a trailer park. He wanted us to get a grenade. Um, and he wanted us to set the grenade by the propane tanks and, and, and blow these people up, you know, and kill them. And because we were able to intercept the case and do the undercover on that case, we were able to save that, that we, we were able to stop that from happening, you know. Um, and those are the things you take home with you and you feel good about. Or when you help somebody, you know, somebody got jammed up, they made a mistake, you help them get maybe less time, you know, they, they're not bad guys. They would just make bad decisions. You get to help them. Um, with sex crimes, I did a lot of cases where I helped child abuse cases as well, you know, that they were big cases. And those are the ones you take with you the most is when you can help people. It makes you feel good. You know, it makes it worth it. You regret anything? Um. I, I, you know what? I wish I was younger so I could do it. I, I wish things would have been, I wish things have, wouldn't have changed so much is what I mean. You know, I, I just wish that things didn't change so much and, and, and things were the way it was when I first started where, you know, loyalty and, 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 and being a street cop, that, that's what I miss more than anything. That's where my memories are is, is doing the job, going through doors with people I trusted. They were my brothers. That's, that's what I, that I, I regret not doing that anymore. Well, where can people find you at? Um, well, I, you know, I really don't have too much social media or anything like that. I, uh, I'm, like you said, I'm doing the boxing, the judging for the mixed martial arts and, and, and boxing events. I'm doing really good with it. I love it. It's my passion. Um, I'm still here in Miami. I'm still in Miami, but everyone wants to come see me. <laughs> None of the bad guys I arrested, hopefully, but I'm still here hanging in here. You know, is there a book or anything and, in the future? You know what? Maybe, maybe. I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I sometimes feel like I'm a dinosaur, you know, like it, who, you know, come on, Bob. Sometimes feel, yeah, yeah, that's true. I was a lot older dinosaur than me, but, um, yeah, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. I mean, 
If I write a book, it's I want to write a book about my whole life, not not just the law enforcement, you know. Absolutely. I want to buy, I want to read about I want to write about my my depression, you know, like the depression I went through when I was getting divorced, and I want to write about a story, you know, not just about law enforcement, you know. Yeah, I, I absolutely. Write, yeah, because um, you know that that's the story. I don't want to I I don't want to be that guy that sounds like I did this and I, I'm the greatest thing since sliced bread. I just don't feel that way. I'm just some regular guy that came from nothing, you know. And and just try to make a good career for my family. And that's it. And that's all I am. Um, well, so. I have been looking forward to this conversation for a long time, and you did not oh. disappoint. Uh, you oh, thank have you, brother. an absolutely amazing story. I'm so honored that you came on here and, and, oh, it's my and honor. let us talk about it. Um, and, you know, with you not being very much on social media presence, we can always hope that the book will come out later on. Yeah. Uh, maybe people will run into you at a fight because you do a yeah. ton of those right now. So I think that's going to be about it for this week on the show. Uh, guys, if you want more of me, I'm definitely on social media. You can find me on Instagram at the DTD underscore podcast. You can find me on Facebook at the DTD podcast. You can find me on YouTube where all these conversations are in video form. And you can find me there at the DTD podcast. Don't forget to go check out our new sponsor, Police Coffee at policecoffee.com. Remember that with every bag that you purchase, they're proud to give 50% of the net profits to the concerns of police survivors. That's an organization dedicated to helping families of fallen officers. Each sale we make and each bag you buy makes a difference. Thanks for showing your support. Always back the blue and make sure that you go check them out. That's policecoffee.com. Anything else that we can add for your story tonight, Lorenzo? No, that's it, bro. I just wanted to thank you for the opportunity. I, I love the the foreman and the way you did this because, you know, you went outside the box. And I love that. I love that. That we just wasn't talking about cases, but we talked about a lot of other things that are important. Well, great. I, I'm so glad that you had a good time. Guys, remember, you come here every week because the best stories are true and I give them to you. Make sure you check out dtdpodcast.net where when Lorenzo's episode comes out, you can see pictures from him. You can see it in video form, audio form, and you'll be able to see a lot of the things that we talked about on then. Guys, we'll catch you on the next one. That's Lorenzo. I'm DJ. This has been the show. We're out of here. <laughs>